following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 22. We are in a transitional period. We've just finished up a series about heaven after 16 weeks of preaching on that subject. And we have a new series that will start in two weeks. That is on the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to study throughout the summer. And so we're in this transitional period, and it's very fortuitous for us today that it's Father's Day because it gives me the opportunity to look at this great text that we have in Genesis chapter 22. This is a chapter that stands alone in its importance. This Old Testament text is rich in its implications that take us deeply into the doctrines of the Christian faith. Some have said that this chapter is the most sublime of all that we find in the Scriptures, and that's because it does set forth so many truths in it. We could actually spend months talking about the doctrines that come out of Genesis chapter 22. For the past several weeks, you've noticed in your bulletin that the articles have been reprints uh, about the or on the exposition of John 3.16. That is perhaps the Bible's most famous verse, Uh, The reference for John 3.16 is loved by many, many people. You see it sometimes on signs that are held up at ball games. You ever watched a a ball game and you see when the camera pans the crowd that somebody will hold up a John 3.16 sign? You remember the guy that had the rainbow hair? That uh, it seemed like he would always be in a very conspicuous place. They tried to avoid him, but the camera would pan the crowd, and there would be this guy with rainbow hair holding up a sign that said John 3.16. I always wondered what happened to that guy. So I looked him up the other day, and I found out that he's serving three life sentences for kidnapping. Uh, that shows you, fathers, that the rainbow is not healthy for you in more ways than one. So uh, just remember that. So, John 3.16, now that is a very important verse. Uh, It's a verse that encapsulates, encapsulates the work of God the Father and God the Son in the redemption of man. And that is a verse that that gives us the good news of the gospel of Christ, the love and the sacrifice of God the Father in giving His Son, Jesus Christ, in, in order to give us eternal life. And if we were to look for an Old Testament passage that would compare to the importance of John 3.16, Genesis chapter 22 would be that Old Testament text. This is what we can call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. There is no other Old Testament passage that is so comprehensive in showing us what the Father has done to ensure the redemption of man from his fall into sin. I chose this chapter for Father's Day because of Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. And I chose it because Abraham and what he did was emblematic of the actions of the Father in heaven who was willing to give his most precious possession, which was his son. I chose it because Abraham also represents the obedience of a believer in a trial of faith. And I chose it most particularly because this 
This picture of Abraham shows us a father who is sold out to God. A father who is willing to do whatever God asks, no matter what that should be. This chapter is actually enormous. I don't mean that it's too long, but I mean just the scope of its themes. So much is in this chapter, it stretches our thinking to even try to explain it all. The scope of the history of redemption of man is found here going back all the way before the foundation of this world, before God ever created the first thing. Even that is shown here in this passage of Genesis chapter 22. I've chosen to take two weeks in order to present this material. Uh, I know that uh, mothers complain that we don't have a, a luncheon for mothers on Mother's Day. And you might complain about that. And I suppose now I'm going to get a complaint that mothers are just not good enough to get two sermons for Mother's Day. But that's what we're going to do for Father's Day. We're going to do this in two sermons this week and next week. And um, uh, fathers, I know there's some disparity between Father's Day and Mother's Day. If you canceled Father's Day, probably nobody would notice. Cancel Mother's Day? That's a totally different story. That, that's like committing the unpardonable sin. You can't be redeemed from that. So, uh, I, fathers, we have a lot to catch up for. So I, I, I'm going to give you two weeks here in sermons about Father's Day. Now let me begin the message this morning uh, with a few words about the promise that God made to Abraham. What God said to him before this chapter is very, very important for us to understand what happens in this chapter. That is essential for us. So we want to go back now to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, where we are introduced to this man who is known as Abram. And I want you to keep your your Bibles open, because we're going to flip through a few pages uh, before we get back to Genesis chapter 22. And we want to look at this man Abraham, or Abram, and the promise that God made to him. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed." And when God called Abram, Abram did not know the one true God. He was an idolater. He would perfectly fit into the passage of Romans chapter 1 of people who have taken the, the things of this world and fashioned them into idols and called that their God. Abraham was in that condition. He didn't know the one true God. And so he had taken an idol and he made that and that's what he worshipped as God. He didn't know God at all. Abraham, we might say, was a heathen then. He changed the glory of God into images that he made with his own hands. Abram was not looking for the one true God because he thought that he already had him. He thought that God was in those idols. He had no understanding of who the true God was, which shows us tremendous truth of the Scripture that for us to understand who God is, God must reveal himself. God must open Himself to us. He must show us who He is before we're going to believe who the true God really is. So God took Abraham. He took Abram. Uh, he took over his life 
It was a sovereign call that God placed upon Abraham's life. And he told him, Abraham, I want you to leave your old life. I want you to begin a new life. I want you to begin a journey of faith. And I want you to leave the place where you're living now and go to a place that you know nothing about. And there, you're going to be a father of a great nation. And this initial obedience of Abraham's faith was a God-given faith. It was not something that he could generate within himself. God gave him the ability to recognize the call of God, to accept that call, and then to leave that place that he called home to go to this other place that he didn't know anything about. And of course, to be a father of many nations, Abraham must have children. And Abraham had none. And unlike this moral, bankrupt society that we live in today, it wasn't because Abraham and his wife Sarai had aborted their children. They would never think of doing that. No, people in those days thought that children were the greatest blessing that you could possibly have. A man's wealth was found in his children. He didn't think that life was even worth living if he didn't have an heir, someone to give his estate to, someone to bequeath the, the inher an inheritance to, someone to bless. He wanted to bless his children, and so they always wanted to have children. A father, a man wanted to be a father, a woman wanted to be a mother. They would never think about forsaking their children. And so a person's real wealth was found in his children. It didn't matter how many herds of cattle that he had, how many flocks of sheep that he had, how many caravans of camels that he had. His wealth was in his children. And that's what Abraham wanted. He wanted to have a child. So God promised that Abraham would have children. And he said, you're going to have so many people that will call you father that it will be like the sands of the sea for the multitudes. But then time passed and years passed. And Abraham still had no children. Well, then we move into the 15th chapter, where God appeared to Abraham again, and he renewed the promise to Abram. And then it was that Abram reminded God that something was wrong. There still weren't any children. And for all this time, there still are no children. So he said to God, where are the children that you promised? If I should die, I don't have anyone to give my estate to. No one's going to receive my inheritance but a servant in my household. Now as valuable and as faithful as Abraham's servant was, Eliezer, as valuable and faithful as he was, that was not what Abraham expected. He didn't expect that his servant would receive his inheritance. And so God told Abram, you don't need to worry about that. The promise is secure. A child is forthcoming. And so in verse 4 of chapter 15, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. In other words, this servant of yours, he's not going to be your heir. But, that shall, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And then verse number 6 says that Abraham believed God. And there it says that his faith was counted for righteousness. And in that statement, we find the Bible's signature method of salvation, that we are saved by faith, by the righteousness of God in faith. That's the way that we become children of God, believers in God, and God counts that faith as righteousness. Not faith itself, but faith in what the Almighty God can do. That is the faith that's counted for righteousness. So Abraham believed God, and God 
said that this is a justifying faith. And that faith of Abraham became a great example for us. Because we go into the New Testament and we find that the, the example of saving faith is Abraham. In Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3 and in James chapter 2, we learn about justifying faith. And that faith is always tied to Abraham. Well, now we go on to chapter 16. And here we find a time of weakness in Abram's faith. A child had not been born. Abraham was now 86 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 76. And it was too late for children. And so Sarai thought that she needed to help God with this promise. And so she cooked up an ungodly scheme whereby Abraham could have a child with her servant named Hagar. And from that union, there was a son born. His name was Ishmael. But he was not God's promised son. Many nations would come from him as well, but those nations became a thorn in the side of God's people. And it's always been that way since that time. God is not pleased when people want to interrupt his plans and want to change his plans and do things for him. Because, you see, God was waiting for a time when it would be totally impossible, naturally impossible, for Abraham and Sarai to have a child. He was waiting for a time that when this baby would be born, that no one could ascribe it to anything but a miracle that came from God. And this is what God did. In the 21st chapter, there was a son, the promise that came. He was a miracle baby. And you, know, you hardly need me to tell you what that's emblematic of. That there was another great miracle birth that took place in Scripture. That's in the New Testament. That's when Jesus was born, an even greater miracle when Jesus was born of a virgin. And so the miracle baby of the Old Testament is in chapter 21. Isaac was born. By that time, Abram's name had been changed to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. He was 100 years old, and his wife Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. None of us can imagine, after waiting for so long and experiencing such a great miracle, what that child meant. To Abraham and Sarai. That there is no way that we can understand how much this very, very special child meant to them and the promise that was attached to it. I'll talk more about that next week. But for today, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the Old Testament pictures that we find in Genesis 22 and the New Testament doctrines that they represent. Now next week we're going to look more at the application of this story. And today what I want to do is to give you an overview of how this chapter pictures great truths that are brought out even further and help us to understand even more in the New Testament. Now the Old Testament pictures, there's a word that we use for that in theology, and the word is simple, it's called a type. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the, the types that are in the story. The story presents types. And that means representations of great truths. And the Old Testament is filled with these types, which tells us that the Old Testament prefigures, or it symbolizes truths that are found in the New Testament. The symbol is known as the type, and then the fulfillment of that symbol is known as the antitype. Now, let me give you just an example, an easy example um, of this. Uh, if you'll turn to First Peter for just a moment in chapter 3, here we find an Old Testament type and a New Testament anti-type 
that are found in the same passage. The Greek word for antitype is actually found in this particular passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 18. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, the like figure, that is the Greek word antitupon. It means antitype. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me just show you or tell you that in this passage... Noah's ark, the ark that Noah built, that is a type. That is the type of this passage. Peter said that during Noah's time that people went into the ark to, or their people were killed in the flood, and there were eight souls, that is Noah's family, that was saved in that ark. And then he says that baptism is a figure that shows how these people were uh, saved from the destruction uh, of the flood, representing the destruction of the soul. The word figure, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the same word from which we get antitype. So in this passage, the ark is the type, baptism is the antitype. Now Peter explains that he's not saying that baptism is something that saves us. That's why he adds that little part there. It says not the putting away the filth of the flesh, not washing away our, our filth and our sins in that way. But really, what baptism also represents is what Christ has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so looking at the passage as a whole, the ark of Noah in the Old Testament is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the antitype of the ark in the Old Testament. Now as the people, as Noah's family, went into the ark to be saved from the destruction of the flood... So we also have safety in Christ, that we are saved from destruction in hell by believing in Him. So the ark is the type, Christ is the antitype. Well, as we look at Genesis chapter 22, there is a multitude of types that are shown, that are seen in the passage. And I, and I want to show you some of these. No doubt there are many more. If you want to dig deeper into this, you could find many more of these. And I didn't put any blanks on your listening sheet the day for them. You just have to kind of write things down as as we go along. But let me show you some of these types and antitypes that come out of Genesis chapter 22. Now the first picture that I want to show you is the Father, both the Father God and the Son Christ in their work of redemption. Abraham represents God who is willing to give up his son and Isaac represents the Son of God who is willing to obey his Father and become a sacrifice for sin. That's the divine side of the type. And the passage is so special because not only does it show us a divine side, but it also takes us to the human side of this. God is so comprehensive here that he's able to represent the other side, that Abraham is also a type of a believer. A believer who accepts and is tested by God. A believer who is tested in order to perfect his obedience. Abraham represents a believer who's willing to do all that God asks, even when what God asks seems to be totally contrary to the way that things ought to go. 
He still believes God. And then on the human side, Isaac switches from the type of the Son of God who was the sacrifice to the sinner. To be like a sinner whose place has been taken by someone else and he's saved from his impending death and destruction in hell. Now at that point, there's another type that enters the picture and I'm sure you know about this. It's the ram that's caught in the thicket. And that ram is a type and the antitype is Christ who took the sinner's place. There's so much in this passage that it just mystifies us how that God could put so much here in such a short space. The sweep of this is incredible. Look at this one in verse number 5. Here, here, here we find a truth that doesn't look forward to the future to find the antitype, but actually reaches back to eternity past, backwards towards the beginning of time. Verse 5 says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again, come again to you. Now Abraham told his servants to stand by, and he said that he and Isaac were going to worship alone. And what is that picture? Well, it shows us that there is a transaction that was to take place between the father and the son. And there weren't any others that were party to it. There is no consideration for anything else but what the father and the son would do by themselves. And in like manner, the antitype of that is the covenant that was made between the father God and the son Jesus Christ... And they were the only ones who are parties to that covenant. They alone decided the plan that God would implement, that the Father would give His Son, that He would choose certain ones out of humanity to give to His Son, and then His Son would come and He would die to redeem them and reconcile them to God. The Son would come to pay the redemption price to reconcile them. In that, there is no input from fallen man. There's none of us that has any part of that plan. The covenant of redemption existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see it here that the servants are told to stay behind. And this is what we are. We are the servants that are told to stay behind. We don't have any part to do with that plan of redemption. That took place within the Godhead. This happened before God created the first thing that was created. There were no people to take part in this plan. And so the covenant of redemption is one that exists between God and God. And that thought is almost too sublime for us to dare even think about. What happened in eternity past, how that took place, how it was decided, how that was communicated between the persons of the Godhead, that's too much for us to answer. But here it is, in a picture, when Abraham and Isaac went up Mount Moriah alone. And we notice in verse number 6, it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. The last phrase says, They went both of them together, and that represents the perfect agreement between the father and the son. Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And so the father and the son agreed upon this. Neither of them was reluctant to put this plan into place. This is an agreement that existed between God and God, and both of them are willing parties to this covenant. Jesus expressed that in the New Testament in John 17, when he prayed and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. 
as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And these verses tell us that the death of Christ was not an accidental sacrifice. This is not a plan B. This is not something that God put into place because He didn't know what was going to happen when Christ came into the world. That God couldn't see what would happen. That men would reject His Son and they would put Him on a cross and there He would die for our sins. This is not a plan B. That's the plan from the very beginning. This is the way that it was set up. So Jesus and the Father were perfectly agreed that this is what they would do. And so we see a marvelous type here, 1900 years before the fact. Alone, Isaac and Abraham went up that mountain together. And then we notice in verse number 6, another type, that Abraham took the wood of the offering and he laid it on Isaac. Can you picture the antitype? If you're thinking, I'm sure that you can. That Isaac took that wood and carried it up Mount Moriah himself, the very wood on which he would be sacrificed and burned. And isn't that emblematic of the cross of Jesus Christ? That alone he walked up Calvary with the weight of that cross on his back, and he was carrying the instrument of his death. And still there's another type. Abraham took fire in his hand. And fire is a type of God's judgment. God used fire as a type of judgment in many places in the Scripture. In Genesis 19, there's the judgment of fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah as God punished these people in His great wrath for their wicked sins. In Leviticus 10, it was the judgment of fire that fell on Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in a strange twist of the story, who had offered strange fire to God. And God destroyed them by fire. John the Baptist said that Christ would burn up the chaff, the wicked, with unquenchable fire. Peter said that the heavens and the earth will be consumed with fervent heat and the works of this earth are going to be burned up. Revelation says that the wicked will be cast into a lake burning with brimstone. Fire is God's judgment on Satan as it says that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. But I want you to understand that this fire is not immediately, not immediately symbolic of the fire that will destroy wicked men, but this fire represents the judgment that would fall on Christ because He stood good for the wickedness of men. God's wrath was to be poured out on Christ, and there on the cross, He suffered hell for those who would believe in Him. This is a picture of the fiery judgment of God that fell on His own Son. And that's vividly shown to us in other types and figures of the Old Testament, such as when God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. And in the law, there was codified the parameters of sacrifice. At the tabernacle, the place of worship, there was an altar there with a fire that was kept burning under that altar continuously as sacrifices were made upon that altar and burned. Millions or rather thousands of these sacrifices were made and all of those animals that were killed were emblematic of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Their bodies were placed on the altar to be burned. Now that animal is a type of Christ, the antitype. 
Fire is a type of the judgment of God's wrath. And the antitype fell. The antitype, the wrath of God, fell on Jesus as he suffered on the cross. And then we think for just a moment that the altar itself, that is a type. That is a type of the cross of Christ. That's where Christ sacrificed his life. And then the brass of the altar, that's also a type. In Revelation uh, chapter 1, it represents the feet of Jesus as feet that are burned like brass that are burned in a fire. Where it says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like a defined brass, as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. We see types and types and antitypes. Chapter 22 looks simple on the surface. It looks like a simple story. Abraham took fire in his hand, and in that statement unfolds God's plan of redemption for man. It tells us that there is no salvation without judgment. Judgment must fall on someone. God is never going to overlook your sin. Judgment has to fall on someone. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your judgment fell on the Son of God. When our sins were placed upon Christ, God could not overlook them. And that's the answer to Jesus' question when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he was forsaken because he had to take the punishment of our sins that were placed on him. Now next we go to the place of sacrifice. Abraham took Isaac to Moriah. Now in another 900 years, there would be a temple that was built on Moriah. And when it was dedicated by Solomon, there were so many animals killed that there was a river of blood that flowed down that mountain. Calvary itself would be in sight of that mountain in the same range as Moriah. And the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac is the very place where the temple was built. Now we look at the question that Isaac asked in verse number 7. Both of them are walking up the hill. Isaac is carrying the wood and Abraham has the fire. And Isaac pointedly asked, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And did you know that that question, Where is the lamb? became a continuous question throughout two years of history from the time of Abraham until Jesus came. The Jews were always asking, Where is this lamb? Where is the lamb that is coming? And it was John the Baptist who showed us the antitype and pointed him out and say, Here he is, here's the Lamb, here is the Lamb that will take away the sins of the world. Now, we see this great question asked, and here forms the greatest type antitype picture that we have in Scripture. Now, we see Abraham's response in verse number 8. Abraham said, My son God will provide himself a Lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went both of them together. God will supply a Lamb for himself. Now, do you get what he's saying? God will make his own sacrifice. God will present his own lamb to his own satisfaction. Now, as far as Abraham could see, he thought that Isaac was that satisfaction. He thought that Isaac is the one that God wanted. And so he took Isaac up there to sacrifice him. 
And all he could see at this point is that Isaac is the one who can satisfy God. But Isaac could never satisfy God. Isaac was a good son. But God wasn't looking for a good son. He was looking for a perfect son. He's looking for one who is without spot, without blemish, perfect in every way. And that's what his own son was. And this is why God sacrificed his own lamb. Now what that says to me and you is that there is nothing that we can offer God. Nothing that we can give God will ever satisfy him. What we have to do is give up being good ourselves, trying to be good ourselves, and that's going to make us right with God. Give up all the self-reformation that says, this is the way that I can get to heaven. I will make myself acceptable with God. Give up worthless sacraments. Give up any idea of being purged from sin in this life or the one after. The only thing that satisfies God is the Lamb that He provided Himself. Man's ill-conceived attempts to satisfy God have gone on since the very beginning. That's what Adam did. Adam sinned, he fell, and what did he do? He tried to cover himself with fig leaves. And those fig leaves are a type. They are a type of the person who tries to be right with God, who tries to satisfy God by his own actions. I will be good enough in order to get into heaven. That did not work for Adam. And it won't work for you. You can't please God with your efforts. Sorrows of contrition and bruised knees of penance are never going to satisfy God. The rosary is not going to satisfy God. You can say it as often as you want. And you can have your do-it-yourself plan. But it's never going to satisfy God. Because God said, I did it. I provided my lamb. Now the lamb is the ram that's caught in the thicket. And so on knowing what God would do, Abraham spoke the truth. He didn't know what God was going to do, but his justifying faith caused him to speak the truth. He believed in God, that God would provide a lamb, and God did. And it was a most happy event for Abraham and for Isaac and for me and you that God gave us a picture in that ram caught in the thicket of Jesus Christ. The antitype is Jesus Christ, and because of his sacrifice, all of us go free. Now, as John 3.16 says, God gave. He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, and it was His Son to give. It was His gift. He didn't spare His own Son. And this is what happens when you try to replace God's gift with things that you do. You blaspheme the name of God. You put your works on an equal plane with what the Son of God did. God hates that kind of thing. God is never going to accept the works of man for salvation. And then let me point out this great truth as well, that the Son that God gave is God. That He is the eternal God. He is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father. And this is what Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And He said, I give my life for the life of the world. So this is God giving Himself. God gave himself for our sins. Now next, as, we, as I've just said, that Abraham headed up the mountain not knowing that God was going to provide another sacrifice. He expected that he had the lamb, but he also expected something else from God. He expected that God would do something great in this sacrifice. And that leads us to the next type. Go back to verse number 5. Abraham said unto his young man, young men, Abide ye here with the ass, 
And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. That statement also has an antitype. Now, Abraham didn't tell his servants this because he was about to do something crazy. That he was going to walk up that hill, he was going to kill his son, and he would come back down the hill alone without him. Abraham did not believe that. He told these men this, to stay here and wait until we come back because he knew there was a view to an antitype. And that antitype, friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priests and under the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. And that's what Abraham saw. He saw in the type Isaac walking back down that mountain with him again. Now you notice here that the text doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about Abraham's reasoning about this, what would actually take place. It just says that we're going to come back down the hill. We're going to make a sacrifice, and both of us are coming back down the hill. But there's no mistaking here what Abraham thought about it. He fully expected that he would plunge that dagger into Isaac, and that he would burn his body, and then Isaac would get up from that sacrifice and would go down the mountain with him. How do we know that's what he thought? Well, the answer is given to us by the author of Hebrews. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Listen, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. You see the word figure again? This time that word is translated from the same word as we get parable. A parable is a story that illustrates another truth. It's nothing different from a type. And the truth that's illustrated here is the resurrection. God promised to make Abraham a great nation. And that promise was kept because Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And I think this is an interesting point because... At this time in Bible history, there had been no resurrections. You and I can look back on Bible stories, and we see in the Old Testament there were times when people were raised from the dead. In the New Testament, people were raised from the dead. Abraham had never read or seen of a resurrection. Never heard of this before. Now later on, Elijah would raise a young man from the dead. There's another story about a man being thrown into the grave of Elisha and touched his bones, and he was... That man came back to life. But Abraham had seen nothing like that, never had seen a resurrection, and yet he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And did you know there was another fellow who lived at the same time that Abraham did, and he also believed in resurrection? That was Job. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now we notice here that there's a difference in resurrections. Abraham expected an immediate resurrection. That God would raise Isaac from the dead immediately. 
And then they would come back down the mountain. Now, I, I don't want to overwhelm you with typology, but I said there's so much here that represents New Testament truth. Now, we go back to the fourth verse and we see, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, God had told Abraham, you are going to sacrifice Isaac. So they began this journey towards Mount Moriah. And Abraham knew in his heart right then that Isaac was going to be put to death. And so in a manner of speaking, you could say that Isaac was already dead to Abraham. He was going to be killed. But it says on the third day, he looked afar off and he saw the place. And they reached that place in three days. And then he sacrificed Isaac. But in his own heart, Isaac was already dead to him. Now, are these things put in the Bible by coincidence? Are, are the figures here, the three days, is that just accidental? How hard do you have to think that this, this is not a picture of Jesus Christ who is dead for three days and then he was raised? And this is what Abraham looked forward to. That's in the redemptive plan of God. And so first we see the immediate resurrection of Christ. And then there's also in this the teaching of the resurrection of believers. The Job passage states it a little bit more clearly to us. But we can also see it in Genesis 22 if we think just a little bit deeper. Because we think about this. What does immediate mean to God? Well, immediate's a function of time, isn't it? Immediate doesn't mean anything to God. Doesn't the Bible say that one day is like a thousand years to God? He doesn't dwell within time. God is outside of time. So immediate doesn't mean anything to him. When he says it, it's done. He's outside of time. There is no waiting with him. And so when he says that something is going to happen, it's as good as done. Because he's not dealing with time. And so Abraham looked at this, a promise of the resurrection. This is going to be done. And this is real faith in God's promise that he would make him a father of many nations. He would return with Isaac and the promise would be true. And do you know why Abraham believed it? Because not only did Abraham have a justifying faith, but he also had a working faith. That is so important. We must have a working faith. He'd already seen what God could do. Remember that miraculous birth? He could look back to see, this is what God can do. Sarah had a child when she was 90 years old. That's what God can do. And can't we see in this also... A miracle of spiritual rebirth. What does God do? He takes a sinner that's hardened, dead in his trespasses and sin, and brings him to life by the power of the Holy Spirit to receive the preaching of the gospel of Christ, to place his faith in Jesus, a justifying faith. Now, what I'm trying to tell you here is that we have just a beautiful story and a powerful story, an all-encompassing story. We're looking here as Abraham represents Father God, and actually, in the story, Abraham is the most prominent. And you know, there are people who dispute that, and they think they ought to dispute it, because the thing, the person who's supposed to be most prominent in the story is Isaac, because he represents Christ. He's supposed to be the most prominent. But this story is not really about Isaac. It's about Abraham. And Abraham represents our father, God. And you don't need to worry about the son being slighted because we say this exalts the Father God. Because you did you know that when God the Father is glorified, so also is Jesus Christ. When you glorify God the Father, you glorify His Son, Jesus Christ. Now as fathers, don't we want to be like Abraham? As a father, 
Wouldn't you want your life to be a picture of the Father who is in heaven? Wouldn't you desire to have the love of the Father? A love like God has? Wouldn't you desire to have the compassion that God has? Wouldn't you have the desire to love your children as God loves His children? Now we pray to heaven that some good men will look at this text today, they'll look at the story, and they'll say, I want people to look at me and see in me a type of the Father God. I want to be like Him. And that's our goal here. It's for fathers to model the love of the Heavenly Father. And I do hope that's the kind of father that you want to be. A father that people can look at and say, He must be a believer. He must be a Christian because of the way that He loves, because of His compassion, because of the way that He treats people, because... He even loves his children and his family so much. That's the kind of father that God wants us to be. That's why Abraham is such a great picture for us. He shows us what God is like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for this great story that we read in Scripture. This is far beyond what we could have ever devised ourselves. No man could ever tell a story like this. No, no man could ever put these kinds of things together that would present so many pictures of future events and the work that you did in redemption. Lord, our, our hearts are amazed at the God that you are, the love that you have, the sacrifice that you made, that you gave your only begotten son. Now, Abraham had his son spared in the end. We know, God, you did not spare your own son. You sacrificed him, gave his life for us. And we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in him. Help us today that we would be fathers that would look to that great sacrifice that was made by the Heavenly Father. And we would say, I want to be like that. I want to have the kind of love that God has. I want to have the kind of faithfulness that God has and that Abraham had. Lord, we just pray that you'd lead us to that today. Open up our eyes to the truth of your word, and we give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are familiar with the way that the Apostle Paul presents his writings in the New Testament, you would recognize that in the first part of his epistles, Paul lays down the doctrine. And then when he's finished laying down the doctrine, then he presents to us the practical aspect of it. What must we do because of what this doctrine says? Now today I told you in the beginning that chapter 22 of Genesis is enormous. And so this is why I have to split it into two weeks. Today I've laid down the doctrine for you. Next week we look at the practical application of that doctrine. What must we do because of the faith that Abraham had in God and the pictures that were shown by that faith? What must we do and that's what we look at at part number two next week. Now here's the strange thing about people listening to sermons, is they want to do away with the doctrine. But skip over the doctrine, just get us to the place that, what are we supposed to do? And it's always doing, doing, doing. But there is no good foundation for doing, unless you know the doctrine that supports what you do. And this is where I think churches fail. They fail to lay down the doctrine without giving us the proper response, or showing us what the proper response to that doctrine is. So I hope next week that you'll come back and you want to hear the application of Abraham's tremendous faith that he shows us in this 22nd chapter.
We'll sing another verse of our song. I've, I've given you enough information today that you could know that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved from our sins. We must believe in Him. He's the one time, all time, sacrifice for our sins. We must trust Him. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org